Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. They went back to build the temple, but the opponents have had a, a victory here in that they've stopped it. Um, and in fact, what it says, uh, where we're picking up today in verse 24, and some of you may notice that we have, we have not read verses 6 through 23 of Ezra, and that's because chronologically they go in a different spot. We'll be coming back to that. Uh, they go in the time of Esther. It's one of those weird things where they 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 jump ahead and then come back. So uh, Ezra 4, 24 is where we're starting. And it says this, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it tells us that for a period of time, the work came to a standstill. What we know is that from the time they went back to start building the temple, they basically built for a couple years. They dedicated the temple and they built the foundation and they got all that done for about two years. Then the opponents start to bribe the officials. They also, as we're going to find out later, they also threaten, make some threats and, and coerce the officials in other ways. They managed to stop the work on the temple for 16 years. When it says the work stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, that's what it means. It means that the they had stalled for 16 years. That's a long time. Um, and you've got to imagine that at some point in there, the Israelites stopped trying. And that is at least going to be the basically the accusation that Haggai the prophet's going to make, that they gave up. They stopped trying to, to move forward. Um, they got comfortable with the status quo. They weren't in Babylon anymore. They were living in Jerusalem now. They had their lands and their house. They were beginning to kind of rebuild their lives, but they forgot about the temple. And um, so that's one of the things we're going to see is we're actually going to read the entire book of Haggai tonight. It's only two chapters. He's a, a, a prophet with not as many words as some that we've seen. Um, and that's one of the things he's talking about. So in fact, as we keep going in Ezra, it says here, now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So this passage in Ezra tells us there are two prophets that came up during this time, one called Haggai, one called Zechariah. Both of them are encouraging the Israelites to press on, to move forward, not to give up, and that they need to continue with the building of the temple. Um, so we're looking at basically, uh, so the, the timing for those who care about the actual years, and maybe none of you, but it's okay. Uh, they return to Jerusalem about 538 BC. They start on the temple. By 536, they've, they've dedicated the temple. They've built the foundation. They've got an altar. Um, but that's when the, the building stops. The uh, opponents begin to win. They, they do all sorts of things to keep the Persian officials to stop the building in Jerusalem. And then in 16 years later, King Darius takes the throne, or maybe 15 years later, because this would be in the second year. King Darius takes the throne, and the work is still not continued. So around 520, BC, uh, Haggai and Zechariah step into this space of nothing happening in Jerusalem, and they become the first prophets, aside from Daniel, perhaps, they become the first prophets in a while, right, since Ezekiel and since Jeremiah, and, and it's because they, they need to hear again from God, and so they step into this space, um, and their primary message, both of them, is to encourage them to continue the construction on Jerusalem, to keep moving forward, to not forget who they are, that they now, no one's stopping, well, I mean, the Persian officials are kind of stopping them, but no one's really stopping them. Um, and tonight, we're going to see Haggai, and he's only two chapters long, and he breaks down, these two chapters break down into four messages. He really just has four messages. So what I'm going to do tonight is we're going to read 
a section. We're going to read one of his messages, and then I'm going to ask you, what's the, what's the summary? What do you see? What do you think the message is for the Israelites, um, or is it for the Israelites? Because I'm also going to ask you, who's this message for? Um, and uh, we'll do that with each of the four messages. Won't take us very long. It's only a couple chapters. Um, we'll dip in just a little bit to Zechariah along the way as well, and a little bit of, of Ezra at the end, just to wrap it all up. So that's kind of where we'll be. Um, I don't anticipate it'll take a long time, but who knows? It could. So that brings us up to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. The second year of King Darius, on the first day of the first month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozodak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while his house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So this is the first message that Haggai gives. So let me ask you guys, uh, who's, how would you summarize this first message of Haggai? Who's it directed to, and what's the content? What's the point? Well, it's the people of Jerusalem, and they're not paying, or they haven't rebuilt God's temple, probably in part because they're not paying their tithe. And um, God says, okay, let me get your attention one more time again. Good. Anybody else? Anything else anybody sees there? Well, they, they're focusing on the wrong thing. They're focusing on their own comfort instead of on what God's called them to do. Yep. Hmm, does that have anything to do with today? <laughs> Definitely seems to be a priority issue here. Anybody else have any thoughts? Yeah. There's, I don't know. It kind of seems like God is calling them to honor him and to acknowledge him. I mean, kind of like what both him and Sue said, but that also makes a lot of sense because I mean, what happened before, like all this happened was because they like forgot about God and went their own way. And then they were coming back to <laughs> rebuild the temple and really like establish themselves you know as god's people and now they're just kind of like not doing that like just yeah, because... that's really good life wasn't bad where they were you know in a sense at that point it wasn't awful um they weren't in danger at the moment if they were just going to come back to jerusalem and live the way they'd been living why, why did they come back they came back for a specific purpose and a specific reason and they forgot that purpose Anything else? Anybody see anything else that stands out in this message? I do like that God let them, I mean, it's not like God is like, 
you know, give everything to me and you guys have nothing. I mean, like they have these like candled houses and, you know, stuff. And so he did, you know, and they do are provided, you know, somewhat. I think they are. I think one point that none of you have brought up yet that I'm, I'm kind of seeing also is that what God's telling them is because you've prioritized the wrong things, you're not getting the things you have prioritized. Do you see that? He's telling them, you keep struggling for more and you never get it. It's like your purses are full of holes. It's like your crops aren't growing. It's like you, you, you eat, but you never have enough. I think he's, I don't think he's saying you always want more and you have too much. I think he's literally saying to them, think, he says twice, consider this, remember these things, remember these things and consider your ways. I think part of the point he's making is you have prioritized your own comfort and it's not coming. You've prioritized your own wealth and it's not coming. And I think he's reminding them, this is the covenant that we have, that I have with your nation, right? You honor me, I bless you. You don't honor me, I don't bless you. Well, guess what? You're not getting blessing right now. Could it be because you've forgotten to honor me? So I think that's part of Haggai's message here is your crops are suffering. You're, you're not doing well. You're never getting all the sustenance you need. Yeah, God doesn't let you starve and you do have your paneled houses, but you're not being provided for. You keep, you keep struggling for more and it's like, it's like something keeps preventing you from getting there. And I don't think this is true all the time, for sure. Sometimes people are poor and they're doing nothing wrong. But in this case, at this moment, what Haggai is telling them is, the reason that you keep feeling like you can't succeed and prosper is because God's opposed to you right now. And the reason he's opposed to you is because you've prioritized the wrong things. You've focused on these things, and those are the very things you're not going to get. So that's definitely part of the message that Haggai is giving there in that, in that first message. And as, as uh, Pam said, I'm trying to get your attention, you know, well, this is how he's getting their attention, by not, not letting them just kind of enjoy the comforts that they're seeking, not letting them get there where they need to get. Even that idea of, you know, you prioritize, he's saying, prioritize God, prioritize my temple. That may seem difficult, you know, like we don't have the timber, we don't have the lumber. If we do that, then how are we going to, you know, have our paneled houses? And he's saying, you found a way, you know, you found a way somehow to build houses. You know, you, you found a way to, to build reasonably nice houses. You know, you, you found a way to survive in a sense, even though you're being opposed. So I bet you could find a way to build the temple. And so build the temple, prioritize that, and then see. Let's see what happens with everything else. It reminds me of um, an illustration I've seen a number of times and actually done a, a few times myself uh, in church during various teachings where you, you take a jar and you have a, a, a bunch of sand that you put in the jar, and then you have a bunch of rocks, and you challenge someone to come up and put all the rocks in the jar so they all fit in the jar with the sand. Um, and it's, it's, impo- it's impossible to do. They can't get all the rocks in. They can't fit them. And then you show them that if you pour the sand out first, put the rocks in and then pour the sand over the top of the rocks, it goes into all the crevices and it works fine. And the point being, get the first things first. You get first things first and the other things will fit in around the edges. And I think that's part of what God is telling them. You know, I'll provide for you. You just got to get your first things first. The um, other thing, David, is how quickly the people forgot what, what their purpose was. Yeah. How quick it was only 16 years from when they came back on fire, I assume, to build the temple. And 16 years later, they've got nice houses and no food at no yep. temple. And they clearly forgot before them, right? I mean, at, at some point, yeah. they, it's probably stopped working very hard because they're like, well, they're not even trying anymore. <laughs> we don't even have to work against them at this point. You know, they they really did give up. And you're right. And that's that is amazing because. Again, it's not like God is asking them to prioritize something that's a surprise. 
It's not like they went back to build their houses and now God's like, oh, don't, don't, don't do the houses, build the temple. They went back to build the temple. Presumably the only reason to build a house was so they had a place to stay while they were building the temple. You know, it's like, it's like miners moving to a mining town and, you know, the town springs up around the mine for the purpose of the miners being able to work in the mine. But if they went and they stopped working in the mine, then everything in the town would fall apart, right? They, 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 there's a, there's a, a priority here. Here's why you went here. You went here to build the temple. Very good. So that is the, the first message that Haggai gives. Hey, guys, you're never going to find the success and the prosperity you want. The blessing from God is going to kind of miss you because this is the covenant he made with you as a nation. It's going to kind of miss you if you, don't, if you don't honor God, if you don't build the temple. That's why you're here. That's the whole purpose at this moment. Um, any other thoughts? Any last thoughts before we go on? Who is he? Uh, here's a good point question. Who is he actually directing this message towards? It says the, the priest, and the priest, and the governor. Yep. So it's the, this official, the official. Yeah. So this isn't actually just sort of a generic prophecy for the people. He's he's holding the leaders accountable, which makes sense, right? It's the governor and the priest mm -hmm. of all people should be saying to the Israelites, "Hey, we have a job to do. <laughs> There's a reason we came here. The governor exists mm -hmm. as the governor for this purpose to build the temple, and the priest. You would think it would be on his heart to build the temple." So Haggai is really calling them out. Certainly the people are hearing it, but he really is starting with the leaders. He's like, you guys have lost your priority. And if you think about it, in a, in a land where their prosperity, where the crops aren't being fulfilled and where things aren't going well, what we know this. We just know this historically, not only of the Israelites, but everybody in the world. If, you, if there's a country that's poor, are the leaders usually as poor as the rest of the country? No, no, <laughs> no. So in fact, Zerubbabel and Joshua are probably the most comfortable of anybody there, right? They probably are the least concerned about the lack of crops. And so in a sense, it makes sense that Haggai would come to them and say, hey, come on, you, you're, you're taking the lion's share of stuff probably. And, and you're, you're, but you see that your nation's not prospering, you know, Zerubbabel, we'll, we'll give him the benefit because he seems to be a decent guy that he wants his nation to prosper. But I think, hey, guys, saying it's because you have forgotten what you came here for. And Joshua, you're the high priest, and you can't even do your job until this temple's rebuilt, right? So come on, you guys, let's, let's get after it. Um, and so that's what it is. So Zerubbabel is the governor of Jerusalem. He's not a king because Israel's not a monarchy, and Jerusalem's not free, right? They're, they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, but they're still part of the Persian Empire. But they do have their own governor, who we'll find out later, is, a, is an Israelite, is a Jew. And so that, that's good. That's, that's profitable. Then Zerubbabel, so going on, says, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Well, yeah, go ahead. Isn't that pretty much like who came back was like the priests and officials? Well, the governor and the priests and a bunch of Levites came back. Um, but they weren't yeah. doing Yeah, like the temple people. Yeah. Yeah. Like when we well, read through it, I mean, they were the people that worked at the temple and the priests. I mean, I'm sure like some others came back too, but that was like the main, like, because I remember reading it and when I was reading it, yeah, it seemed like very much like those, those people for well, the temple. For sure, for sure. They made sure that they had the people there to take care of the temple, which again is ironic because it didn't get built. But they, they made sure they had the people there to take care of the temple and work with it. Yeah, for sure. Those are, those are a major component of the people who are there, no doubt. 
So then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jozodak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And then, and the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So the result of this message is, is the leaders hear it and the people hear it. And I think it's in that order. Again, I think the leaders hear it and they're stirred up in their spirit. And so then they cast the vision for the people and the people hear it and they're stirred up. And so now they're all back, they're all back on track. They're all back on target. I also kind of love the fact that God says to the leaders, hey, you guys have messed up, fix it. And then when everybody repents, it's like God gives a different message to the people. And what is that message? Did you catch that? I am with you. I'm with you. So I, I love that because I think part of what happened is part of the reason they stopped building was because they got discouraged because the opponents had a victory because they couldn't build the temple. And I think at a certain point, I would guess that part of the reason they stopped honoring God and building the temple is because they started stopped thinking it was what God wanted. I think at a certain point they were like, well, God's not behind this. God's not with us. And then so they begin to pursue other things and God wasn't behind those other things. And so they just, I think there's this general malaise or sense in the country, in the city, in, in Jerusalem, that, that God is kind of opposed to them, that God's not with them. And at, that he's at, at, word, at best distant and at worst actually opposed to them. And so Haggai's message to the leaders is, I am kind of opposed to you. But then when they all turn, it's like God immediately fills that void with the assurance, hey, I'm with you guys. You can build this temple because I'm here, because I'm with you and I'm on your side and I'm in your midst and we can do this. Um, and so I think that's, uh, to me, that's kind of interesting, just kind of the flow of that. Um, and it's encouraging that the response to the prophet is as good a response to a prophet as we've seen uh, throughout the Old Testament. Good. Any other thoughts on that before we press on? Well, um, I have a question. Did sure. God originally tell them to go rebuild the temple or did they kind of or were they like that's what we should go do um i mean the 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 uh, persian king gave them the freedom to go build the temple and they certainly took it as a call from god i don't remember if there was a specific prophet who said go build the temple but it made sense they were they knew the restoration had begun and that seemed to be what everything was about that was the vision because i could see because I could see too, like, I mean, like God just like destroyed the temple. I mean, like 70 years earlier, but you know, that was kind of one of the last things that happened and, you know, and his glory left before that and everything. And so I could kind of see like, you know, them kind of questioning doing this, you know, after coming back. I think possibly after, especially the if they run into opposition. Right, but I think I mean I probably would. I think that's the key is that it's in, in relation to the opposition, and maybe maybe what you're saying is yeah they didn't have a direct line from God, but I suspect the governor Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest had had told them it was from God initially. So I think that the opposition caused them to question that, but I don't think there was probably real question. I don't think there would have been any real question of it if they hadn't sort of failed initially. 
seems like. Do I remember that the king of Persia gave them the, the supplies or or the materials to build the temple? He did give them some supplies. He did. Yeah. And, and what we're going to find out later is this is part of what happened. What Part of what the opponents succeeded in doing um, uh, part of what the opponent succeeded in doing is, we don't see it yet, but we'll see it when we read Esther. Part of what they succeeded, or Nehemiah, part of what they succeeded in doing is pre preventing the Persian officials from sending materials to the Israelites. So that's part of what happened. Yeah. And that's even why I think here, Haggai's like, so don't wait on them. Go, go get some lumber. You, again, you found a way to do it with your houses. Find a way to do it with my house. You know, go do it. There's also a possibility, and I think we'll see this later in Haggai, that some of their discouragement was that they began to realize they would never be able to match the glory of Solomon's temple. And, and some of that may go back. Remember, that was the other thing that we kind of left off with. I mean, it was either last week or the week before. I mean, two, the last time or the time before. One of the things we left off with was this bittersweet moment where some of them are, are, are singing and some of them are crying because they remember the glory of the old temple. And I think there probably was a little discouragement as they began to rebuild what they could and that they realized we do not have Solomon's wealth. We do not have Solomon's labor. There's no way this is going to look like Solomon's temple. And so in, in some ways that kind of demoralizes you too. You know, they're just like, yeah, we, if we can't do it perfectly, why should we do it at all, right? Perfectionism, once more getting in the way of, uh, of accomplishment at all here. All right. So that's Haggai. That's the first message. Here comes the second message. Haggai 1. Uh, oh, and it, it was, it's weird. It's like 15a. We kind of end it in the middle of a verse, just the way it breaks things up. Um, this is another one of those weird moments where the, the end of one chapter is in the middle of a sentence. So I'm just going to read straight through that here. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josodak, the high priest, and the remnant of the people, and ask them, who of, you is, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So how would you summarize this message from Haggai? The glory is from him, not from the stuff yeah. in the temple. Yeah. I think yeah. That's, that's good. That's really good. Anybody want to add to that or confirm or have something different? I think in, <clears throat> um, in like a way he's giving his blessing on them, on it, and encouraging them to continue. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody else? Well, and it's, I mean, like if the idea is that his glory is separate from the temple, that's the same message that they got when they were first sent into exile. So he's saying, you know, even as you rebuild the temple and return, that doesn't, that's not becoming 
the thing any your security or your prosperity it's still me this is just again the symbol of that mm-hmm. yeah. no that's really good and i love when he says he says uh the silver is mine and the gold is mine i think part of his point there is yeah, you don't have all the wealth Solomon had, but guess who does? I do. If I wanted to build this temple to look like Solomon's, I could absolutely build this temple to look like Solomon's. Silver and gold is nothing. Don't worry about it. I'm the glory, right? Silver and gold is just, it's stuff I use, you know? And so I think you all nailed it. I think you all got it exactly right. The the point of this is don't be discouraged that this doesn't look like what you remember the temple being. Because as you pointed out, Lorian, that isn't where the glory is anyway. It's never been that. It's my glory. It's me. And I will be here. And I am here. And so I will. And yes, don't worry. I haven't become a lesser God than I used to be. I will shake the heavens and I will shake the earth. And I will still be the desire of all nations. Even if this temple doesn't look like you think it should, even if it doesn't look with the incredible you know, glory of, of, of Solomon's temple, or remember Ezekiel's temple? How many of them are remembering that? Maybe they're like, wait a minute, not only is this not going to look like Solomon's temple, there's no way this is going to look like Ezekiel's temple. Remember how, how huge and grand that was? And what if they were thinking, which might be reasonable, we thought we were going to come back and build Ezekiel's temple. <laughs> now they're like, well, there's no way. It, we just, that's impossible. So it's just, they're kind of stepping down, you know, and, and that's hard. That can be discouraging, but I think you guys nailed it. The point that Haggai's making is God is saying he's here and that's all you need. He is the glory and that's all you need. You don't need to worry about it, it looking like everything else. You know, as a pastor, I can definitely say it is a constant sort of fight to not buy into all the assessments that the, the, the rest of the world gives you. When, when pastors get together at a pastor's conference, right? there's a question that inevitably comes up. Two pastors meet each other and neither one wants to ask this question, but it is like it is, it is mandatory in the physics of the universe and it comes out of your mouth as a pastor. And it's, how's your church doing? I.e., how big is your church? How many people do you have? And we hate that question because we know as soon as we ask it, the other person's going to feel judged no matter what their answer is. Or if their answer is really good, we're going to feel judged because we know that's one of those questions also to which the appropriate answer is to be asked the same question you just asked. And so pastors have this conversation. How's your church doing? And they always say, oh, it's great. We're growing. We have X amount of people. That's always the answer to how you're doing. And I think that, you know, God is really clear throughout scripture that if two or three are gathered together in my name, there's power, there's authority. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's really nuts. That shouldn't be the metric. It shouldn't be the assessment. But it's, it's easy to kind of get discouraged that way. And I think we all have measures of success that are not necessarily the measures of success. Um, it's so easy, even just in our lives, to look and say, well, I'm not married yet, or, or I, I am married, or I don't have kids, or I do have kids, or, or I don't have the right job, or I haven't moved up the scale, or I don't make enough money. I think there's all these measures of success that are kind of artificial, but they feel really real, and they feel kind of necessary. And I think it is important to remember in all of that, you know, we, we have the God of the universe with us. What else do we need in a sense? And I think even as they're building the temple and it's not exactly what they envisioned, that's part of his point. Uh, so let's dip into Zechariah 1, 1 through 6 before we go back to Haggai, just because it happens chronologically to be here. So Zechariah chapter 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. In case you had forgotten that. 
Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. So this is Zechariah's introductory message. This is how he begins his prophecy. In what ways is it similar to Haggai? And in what ways is it different? Should I is the tone different? Is the message different? Let's just kind of compare and contrast the two. They're contemporary prophets. They have similar goals. Um, but in what ways are they different? And in what ways are they the same? Well, Zechariah is more consolidated, more concise. And uh, he just says up front, return to me and I will return to you. Instead of giving them stuff about their house, he just cuts to the chase and makes the command. Yeah, so it seems a little bit less specific. Um, it's just sort of general repentance, whereas Haggai was specifically saying, get back to building the temple. That's what you're supposed to stay on task. Mm -hmm. Both um, it, also, it seems a little different, too, because he says, like, return to me and I will return to you. Whereas he keeps like encouraging them and Haggai that he is with them. I think that's true. But Haggai one was more of this flavor, right? Where he said, God is not blessing you because you're not building my temple. Do oh, that. you're just talking about the beginning of Haggai? Well, I'm, no, I'm just pointing out that Haggai also had, we've read a lot more of Haggai than Zechariah. And I'm just pointing out, he starts out in a similar, similar tone as well. But you're right, Zechariah hasn't said any of that. He's, he's less encouraging, perhaps, so far at this point. Yeah, he's saying, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. That's more extreme than just the fact that they're ignoring the temple to build their own homes and their own comfort. It is, but be careful. Go back and look at that passage. Is he actually saying to them, turn from your evil ways and evil practices? Uh, okay, yeah, he, this is what he had said to them before, but he said, and, and he said look what happened. Right. So the question is, he could be saying to them, you also need to turn from your evil ways, or he could simply be saying, don't make the mistake they made by not listening to the prophets. So we, it's hard to tell. Is he, is he saying they're at the same place the ancestors were, or is he warning them so they don't get to the same place the ancestors were? Yeah, the, the, last, the last line, then they repent and it said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, is that... Is that their response to um, Zechariah? Zechariah, or is it continuation of the 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 dialogue or the the history? I, it's a little unclear, but I think that's their response to Zechariah because it seems like Zechariah's point is that the ancestors' response was not that way, and that's why they okay. ended up in exile. Well, I mean, in okay. those so ways. Oh, so then, sorry, they were, they, then they knew that they needed to repent they when did. they heard this message. Again, the, the positive thing in both Zechariah and Haggai is they do seem to be responsive. Yeah. I mean, they are, and maybe you guys already said this, but um, they are similar in that God is really trying to, yeah, help them see that, see what happens when they don't 
you know, honor him for sure. And follow him and making that super clear. Yeah. 100%. That's good. That's good. Anything else? It's interesting that you said he's more concise and, and you're right. And, and he's more general and less specific. It's interesting because he's also about 10 times longer. Okay. 10 times too much. He must be about three times longer than the book of Haggai. Um, he's a, he's, he has a lot more to say when you get right down to it. Um, so Haggai chapter two, third message from Haggai. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied. So here's one of those little play acting moments that God has. He's like, okay, Haggai, have people go ask the priest this question. And they did. And the priest was, so if, if you have something consecrated and it touches something that's not consecrated, does that thing become consecrated? And the priest said, no, that's not how it works. And then he said, but if I have something that's defiled and something consecrated touches something defiled, does it become defiled? And the priest said, yes, that is how that works. It's an interesting uh, point, but it comes strictly just that why ask the priest? Because this is just matters of law. This isn't, uh, this isn't difficult questions for them. So then he goes on and he says this. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now, give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were done before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. All right, there's some similarities here to the first message, but it's not exactly the same. And it's a little bit complicated. So take a second to think it through. What is the message here? What's the summary of this third message from Haggai? Well, the similarities is in uh, the first message, he talks about... Um, having clothes and never being warm enough, having drink, but remaining thirsties, earning a wage, but the purse has a hole in it. This is, you know, you go to draw a 20 and there's only 10. So there again, you're only getting a, a partial of what you have the opportunity to have. That's good, Pam. I think you're right about that. That section is is repeating sort of what the first section was saying that that you're not getting what you are expecting to get. You're not receiving all that. That's good. Now, connect that to uh, this whole consecrated, defiled discussion of the law, um, and then see if we can figure out what the message here is here that's different from the first message. So, can anybody can anybody figure out what this has to do with this conversation about consecrated and defiled things? One, one question I have is, he says that from the very beginning, before one stone was laid on another, everything was, no, it wasn't defiled, was it? Yeah. What is he saying? That's a good, really good question. I, 
I don't know if this is right, but in some ways it's kind of, I mean, he's saying that, I mean, he's talking about like blight and mildew and hail that he brought. And then he like seems to kind of connect it um, to like for them to like, I don't know. It seems like he's kind of saying like build the foundation like on me and have the foundation on that and then like things like won't be defiled and like things that are all already consecrated don't make like other things consecrated like you know but things that are defiled can defile other things he is saying that the first one that? in the first one we talked about the priorities being out of order and mm -hmm. I think that's what this is talking about, uh, consecrated versus defiled. And so, so what, is the, what is the relevance for them as they're building the temple? If they believed that consecrated things made the things around them consecrated, what would be the error that they might come to as they build the temple? That, that they wouldn't see the everyday stuff as being consecrated to God. I, I think that may be true. I'm not sure that's the point he's making here. I can't argue with that. Okay. Too, um, <laughs> probably You're always so diplomatic. I think part of what he's saying is... And I want to say is that but I don't know that this is necessarily right, but that he's the one that consecrates things. I think that's that's definitely true and that's definitely part of what's here. That That's a piece of it for sure. And this is a little bit of a complicated passage, I'll, I'll grant you. I mean, I think he winds through a couple ideas and it's all, it's kind of like until you see them all together, it's hard to piece them together. Here's how I Okay, think English that. major, what is it? So, <laughs> yeah, Jeff, what were you going to say? So, I mean, basically if they think that one consecrated thing consecrates other things around it basically they're gonna just say oh well we have something consecrated so you know we can do whatever and everything becomes consecrated on the but in reality that one consecrated thing that they start with or whatever is going to become defiled by everything i think there's two points right. well no, and that's really good jeff i think you're 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 in the ballpark yes lorraine go ahead well, and also they, throughout their history, kept thinking that they could live in the middle of all of these people who were not following God and maintain their consecration, when in reality, they just got pulled more and more towards those other high places, those other gods, until eventually they were sent into exile because they were so far gone. That's a really good point. You know, God wanted them to be a blessing to other nations, but frequently what happened is they simply became corrupted by other nations, right? They didn't, they didn't, they didn't consecrate other nations so much as they became defiled. I think that's really good too. So here's how I, I think you guys are all hitting really good points. And here's how I think this flows. And this is could I, I I've got one more, I've got one more too. Yeah, go for um, it. He was talking before about the, the motivation of them or the, the priority of building their own homes before the temple. You could sort of make a connection that that was their mentality is defiled because their motivation is defiled because it's inappropriate. Whereas the, the, the pure consecrated version would be building the temple first. Yep. That's a push. Yep. No, I think it's there. <laughs> I, I think it's there. 
So I, I think those are all pieces. I think that you can kind of see the flow of all of those perhaps in this way. If they, they're, they're about to build the temple. This, at this moment, one of the differences between this and the first message is they've already repented and they're about to build the temple. So he's gonna give them a warning to watch out for something as they're building the temple. So I think the first thing is to recognize that simply building the temple will not make you and everything around you consecrated. The temple's consecrated, mm -hmm. but that doesn't, as you guys already said, this is one of the pieces you guys hit on. That doesn't mean you can go do whatever you want and it's automatically consecrated. That all the defiled things you were doing are now okay because you build a temple. In other words, I know that I've been pushing you to build a temple. Please don't get confused that the temple is the magic thing because what's really been the goal, we saw it in Zechariah and, and we saw it in Haggai both, repent, repent and honor me. Don't, don't, it's not just about building this structure. So I think that one of the things he wants to say is just because you build the temple does not make everything you do consecrated. So you guys hit on that and that's really good. Second thing he says is, remember this, as you build the temple, this is where I think, and it's a little bit confusing too, because we know historically they've actually already laid the foundation. But I think when he says here, be, think about the way it was before you laid the foundation. I think he means now, what they're about to do now. So I think he's saying, when, as you build the temple, don't forget, remember what it was like before you started building the temple. Because what was it like before you started building the temple? Well, you didn't have enough measures. You didn't have enough wine. You didn't have enough. That's where he goes back and reiterates. You didn't have stuff. Don't forget that. Remember, that's what it was like before you started building the temple. Because, well, the reason I want you to remember that is, and this goes back to the other piece you guys all brought together, is because you defiled everything you touched. The reason there was no success, the reason you had no prosperity, the reason I gave you mildew and hail and all that was because everything you touched, you defiled. And why? Because you weren't consecrated. Not because you didn't build a temple, but because you yourself weren't, weren't consecrated to me. You weren't devoted to me. You weren't, now building the temple was a symbol of that. But so that's what he's saying is, remember that you were defiled. <laughs> <laughs> and when you were defiled, nothing was good. Remember that as you build the temple, it doesn't automatically make you okay. Instead, he says, remember, remember that it's I who consecrate you and that it's I, as, as Meredith said, so again, all these pieces are here. It's I who consecrates things. It's I who will bless you and make your crops go better. So building the temple isn't what's gonna make you prosperous and successful. I'm gonna make you prosperous and successful as you're repenting and responding to me. And then having said all that, the basic message that Haggai is giving is actually the opposite of the first chapter of the first message, because what he is saying is, from this day on, I will bless you. And when you think of it that, then the rest of it makes sense backwards. In other words, God is saying, guess what? You've started building the temples. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to suddenly start seeing prosperity. You're going to start seeing success. I'm going to bless you. As that happens, remember what it looked like before the temple. And remember that the important thing is that you be consecrated to me, not just that you're building a temple. I am not just a God who's just happy with your building a temple and therefore I'm giving you some extra food. I am a God who is reminding you, I consecrate things and I'm choosing to consecrate you and I will choose to bless you. Remember that as you build the temple and you see prosperity. That's kind of the flow, I think of it all. Does that, does anybody have any thoughts on all that? Also, uh, he, at that one point, he said, I am with you. And then two months later, when they repented, he says, from this day on, I will bless you. Yeah. So he good. went beyond being with them to blessing them, promising to bless them. I like that. I like that. That's a good catch. That's a good catch. Ezra 5.2.
uh, gives us a nice little summary of where we are. It says, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jezodek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Uh, that's just kind of a nice summary, but I think one of the things it reminds us of is how often has this been true in Israelites' history, that the king, the governor, the priest, and the prophets, and the people are all on the same page. When's the last time that happened? <laughs> I mean, this, this is kind of amazing, right? Maybe King David, right? Maybe it happened in the time of King David, but that's that may be the last time. So often the prophets and the kings were against each other or the priests and the prophets were against each other. You know, this is an amazing moment where the prophets, the kings, the priests, and all the people, they're all united in their vision and their goal. And that goal is to build the temple. So it's it should be an encouraging moment for us even just to realize, hey, that's cool. <laughs> that's where we are. Yay. <laughs> Finally. Uh, good. All right. Haggai 2, 20 through 23. So here's the last message. So let's just recap a little bit. The first message of Haggai was basically what? Who remembers? Back to building the temple. Um, get back to building the temple and, and, and what's happening because you're not. That your crops are not working. Basically, just never stated. Yeah. yeah, you prior you're not building the temple. You prioritized your own houses, and because of that, you're not seeing success. You're not seeing prosperity. That was message one. Message two. What was the second message? That he's going to be with. That he is with them. That he's with them, and that he's the glory. Right? He's the glory of the temple. Don't worry if the temple isn't as glorious as Solomon's. I'm the glory. You just do the work. Just build the temple. I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll be responsible for the glory. <laughs> Let me do it. And the third message we just looked at was, I will bless you. From this day forward, I will bless you. And Sue, you're muted. Just so you know, I see you speaking every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And they repented. There you go. Good job. You could tell us you said anything you wanted because you were muted. We'd have to believe you. Um, Haggai 2. Okay, so here's the fourth message. Haggai 2. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So, how would you summarize this fourth message of Haggai? First of all, who's it to? This is definitely to the governor and the priest. Right. I heard, I heard several of you say it. This is to the governor. This is a message directly mm -hmm. to the governor. This is like a personal message. This is like one of those prophet to king messages or prophet to governor in this case. Um, and what's the message? He's going to be a big deal. He is. And there's a reason this is important. Would it surprise it's you? It's going to be a little squirmish. Yeah. Little there's, battle. There's still going to be battles. We know that. <laughs> but, and if they've been listening to Daniel, they're, they know that too. But aside from Daniel, that's still 400 years. But uh, well, here's what's interesting. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that guess what lineage Zerubbabel is of? Guess who his ancestor uh -huh. is, his very important ancestor? Jesse. David. Jesse. Good, good, clever answer. David. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> checking to see if i remember david's connected to jesse yes yes uh <laughs> zerubbabel is of the lineage of david and this is important not only for zerubbabel 
But this is, again, hugely encouraging and important to the Israelites because the guy that's back in charge, the guy that's the governor, because the Persian kings could have put could have made anybody governor, right? They could have just randomly picked someone. Mm -hmm. They could have even made a Persian governor. You know, they could have done so many things. And the person who ends up being the governor, the leader, essentially the king of Israel at this point, is somebody of the lineage of David, even through the exile, even after all the discipline and punishment, we are right back to a place where Zerubbabel is of the lineage of David and God is reaffirming his promise, right? He's basically reaffirming, you're the man, I've chosen you. In a sense, he's saying, yeah, I chose you now, but he's also kind of saying, I chose you back when I chose David, right? I chose you before you even existed because you're part of this lineage. And, and this is another part of what I just said before. This is just really, if you're an Israelite at this moment, this is a great moment. Even though nothing's happened yet, look at all the promise and look at all the hope. Because what's happened? The exile's over, essentially. You're back in Jerusalem. You're working on the temple. You've got a high priest who seems to be a good guy, and he's got a good name. How can you fall to Joshua, who's a high priest? But he seems to be honorable. You've got prophets who are telling you, you're doing the right thing. I mean, they, they ask you to repent, but then when you do, they're like, you're doing good. And you've got a king who is of, or a governor who is of the lineage of David, whom God has just affirmed is of the lineage of David and the temples being rebuilt. I mean, this is actually, this is a great moment. It feels like things are getting back to where they were. Now, God continues to warn them. Obviously, there's some things we don't want to go back to, right? We don't want to get confused about what it means to be people of God. It doesn't mean you're going to be David's kingdom again. That's never going to happen. There will never again be a kingdom of Israel that is like David's. And, and that's probably the, always their temptation and their desire. I, I shouldn't say that. There will be under the Messiah, but there won't be until then. And, and, it's, and it won't be exactly like David's. It'll be different than they anticipated. And so, you know, that's probably the temptation. Or, and you'll never have a temple that looks like Solomon's, you know, not exactly. You know, that's probably the temptation. But God is saying, yeah, it won't be exactly what you thought, but you were wrong before. The good news is all the promises, all the potential, all the hopes, they're all still here. Look, even after your 75 years of exile, they're still here. I didn't lose you. I didn't lose track of you. I didn't lose track of who we are. Don't you lose track of who we are either. So this whole section, Haggai is ultimately, I think, a very encouraging prophet. Um, and then this moment is an encouraging moment. And when Haggai finishes his prophecy by saying, you, Zerubbabel, you're the man, it's just a, an encouraging moment, not only for Zerubbabel, but for everybody. And it doesn't mean they won't have any more struggles. We already know from Daniel they will. Um, but it does mean that, that things are still here. Everything's holding together. All the promises have somehow survived and persevered through the exile. And that's kind of the, the important thing. And that, as it says uh, here, let's see, I can't do this. As it says here at the top of my picture, 520 BC, that's all one year. What we just encountered there is just the year 520 mm -hmm. BC, and, um, and that's where we are. And that's actually uh, all I have for the day. Does anybody have any comments or questions or anything? We have a few minutes. Anything anybody wants to point out or ask about? I have a question. Yeah. Because in this, he's saying that there's going to be the, the heavens and the earth are going to shake and there's going to be overthrown royal thrones and so forth is all that supposed to happen while Zerubbabel is the leader or right. is it when he's the I signet mean, ring that's a symbol of I mean what he's saying this is Zerubbabel think this is all going to happen is in his time in lifetime 
That's a really good question. Of course, I don't know what Zerubbabel thinks. I would say if I was Zerubbabel, I certainly would probably think that. I mean, he couldn't hardly fault him if he does. And there's a degree to which that's true. I mean, during Zerubbabel's time, you know, Babylon has fallen and Persia is going to, you know, have some definite uh, shifts in kingship. We're going to have the story of Esther, which is a, a real victory for Jews. So there are going to be some, some moments like that. I don't think it's completely not true. But it certainly doesn't appear to be, again, once again, as expansive in Zerubbabel's time as it sounds, right? I mean, he doesn't, it's not, it's not quite, and I do think, you know, calling him his signet ring is really just saying the lineage continues. And, okay, yeah. you know, and you're part of it. But no, yeah, it's that not was, going to happen now. And with Zechariah, yeah, yeah, we're going to see even more of that with Zechariah, that a lot of what he prophesies, again, we have to say, we don't have to say, but it makes a lot of sense to say, gosh, some of what Zechariah prophesies sure feels like he's talking about times much, much later, uh, possibly times later than we've lived, certainly times yeah. of the Messiah, and, and not all times where Zerubbabel actually lives, yeah. And go ahead, so you were starting to say something else, I think. Yeah, what's the significance of saying that he'll be like his signet ring? I, so establishing him yes yeah, that is being like, like what they put in the, the stamp on yep is that what kind of signet ring it is it is it's proof that that the king is sending the message right so okay. when, when a king makes an edict or a promise you could look at it that way when a king makes a promise or a law he signs it with his signet ring and it says this is going to mm -hmm. happen the king is guaranteed it i think that's what it is it means you are okay. my promise you are the seal of my promise i said the lineage of david would continue guess what here you are, you're the seal of that promise right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think it's like the, the signet ring indicates, like you said, the king's approval as well, which is not that any of the other kings that God used, like got around God, but other times he used them and then he was like, and then someone else is going to come along and judge sure. them. They're really just sort of this judgment tool, but there's something more yeah, I guess approving about that idea of a signet ring, like a willing tool instead of just a tool that was going to be passed along. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. By well, the way I like it seems like he's just kind of taking him back to like the beginning and just kind of like building like upon things, you know, the with the the temple and the, the foundation, like putting it on like him. And it will, and it kind of reminded me in the New Testament about, you know, like Testament about like um, building your foundation on the rock. And um, so he talked about that and then like how he's with them and then like the glory of God being there and how he's blessing it and like, like going forth from there and like, you know, the prophets and the priests and um, the, the officials like coming together and, um, and then like, you know, him like God establishing like um uh, Zerubbabel you know um and them and establishing them again as his chosen pe people and it kind of seems like it's just kind of like really like building them back you know to how what they're like supposed to be as like um God's people and how you know working through them and everything no, I think that's exactly right. This is a, a restoration, and the restoration requires a rebuilding of who they are. I think that's that's a really good way to put it. Anybody else? So here's something to uh, to ponder or to be aware of. 
that maybe you will find uh, encouraging. I did. Um, according to my outline, uh, as I look over the next bit, we should be done with the Old Testament in about 11 weeks. Now, maybe that'll be 11 consecutive weeks, or maybe I'll have to cancel, but if it's, if it's 11 consecutive weeks, we'll be done before the end of 2021 with the Old Testament. So that's kind of cool. Um, we'll get to start the new year in the New Testament. Um, if that's the case, it means that we, uh, uh, we so to remind you, because you may not know, we've covered a lot of ground. We actually started this go-round in January 4th of 2016, and I made a note because my previous group, we had lots of arguments about when we started, and, and we all had different memories. So when we started this time, I actually noted it down. So we started on January 4th, 2016. So if we're basically starting the New Testament on uh, January of 2022, um, that means we did the Old Testament about six years, which is a little bit faster than we did at the first go round. So we're actually ahead of the game. Um, it took us about nine years to do the whole Bible. The New Testament is significantly shorter than the Old Testament. Um, and so I would guess we'll probably do it in a couple of years. So I think we'll be done about eight years rather than about nine years, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Um, but anyway, I think it's kind of cool. We've covered a ton of ground and uh, you know we've just got Zechariah, we already finished Haggai. So we've got Zechariah, the rest of Ezra, Nehemiah, we've got Malachi. He's our only other, and or two more prophets, yeah. Malachi and Joel. Joel will be the last book of the Old Testament reread. I realize Malachi is the last one in your, in your non-chronological Bibles. And the truth is nobody knows where Joel actually belongs. So they just threw him at the end. Um, but he could have been earlier too. But Joel and Malachi, Zechariah, those are the prophets we have left. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are the, uh, the stories and the histories we have left. Um, I don't think I left anything out. Yeah, I think that's it. So just those few books, and then we're done with the Old Testament. Then uh, in the new year, we'll do a couple weeks on the intertestamental period. I like to connect the history so you know what's going on. We'll talk about things that happened, things that changed. It's where we see the beginning of, of a whole group of people we call rabbis. You notice rabbis don't exist in the Old Testament at all. Um, they barely exist in the New Testament, but they're beginning to sort of pop up as a, as a thing. And we'll talk about how that all happens, and we'll talk about where the Pharisees came from, and the Sadducees, and the Essenes, and all these different groups and sects that don't exist uh, here so far in the Old Testament. You're a Jew, or you're a Jew. Um, and, uh, and so we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk about that when we get in the New Year. So anyway, definitely getting ahead of myself, but I just was looking at my outline today, and I said, hey, I can outline the rest of the Old Testament, and I did, and I think it's going to be about 11 weeks, so. We have 60 oh. pages. Is that all? Oh, we can definitely do mm -hmm. that. Less than 11. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. That's 60 pages. How many pages are in the Old Testament in your Bible there? Somebody tell me. 1249 is the start of the New Testament. So 60 out of 1,49 is pretty good. I actually did that in my, in my notes. One other thing I was going to say um, is just to you guys, pat yourselves on the back. I mean, some of you have been here since the beginning of the Old Testament, this go round. Some of you came in a little bit later, but most of you have been here for a while. And um, I just really want to say what you've done and what you're doing, it, it really is, it, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare for the American Christian, for sure. And I just really think there is no shortcut to learn the breadth of scripture. You know, you can do Old Testament surveys, and you kind of get the history, and you can dip in and out, but there's just no shortcut for going through it piece by piece. And I know that there are days that you guys have been, you know, the, the names start rolling over you, and you're doing your best to stay awake. And I know that happens, 
but you guys have hung in there. And, and I really want to tell you this because I really think this is true. And I think you will tell me this is true when we get there. When we start going through the New Testament, you will be amazed how much you actually have retained. You will discover, mm. that you will see things in the New Testament that you go, oh yeah, oh, that's what that's referring to. I never knew that before. And it, and it will be such a cool feeling of discovery for you that you don't get when a pastor says to you, here's what this New Testament refers to in the past. You know, even if I have to remind you as we go through it, when you hear it, you'll remember the story, you'll remember the context, you'll, there'll be a certain breadth and depth, depth that you have to the New Testament that most, I'll just be honest, most American Christians don't have because they haven't gone through the Old Testament as, as thoroughly and carefully as we have. So I just really want to say to you two things. One, kudos to you. Congratulations. Thanks for hanging in there. And two, I think you're going to find the rewards. I really do. I think when we, when we get to the New Testament, you're going to, you get, some of those things are going to click and connect in ways they never have. And you're going to be, you're going to be engaging with the New Testament more like a Jew, um, which to be honest, is a really good way to connect with the New Testament because that is who they were. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the culture that Jesus was interacting with. And I, so I just want to tell you, I think it's great. And I want to applaud you for sticking it out through pandemic, through Zoom, whatever, you know, just, just that you guys hung in there and you didn't let anything kind of get in your way. Kudos to you. Congratulations. I applaud you. However, I have to say, when you, when you start each week and you say, what did we discuss last week? I can't remember it. So what makes me, what makes you think I'm going to remember all this when we start on the New Testament? I because can't remember what Haggai, Haggai I, said yesterday. Because you do remember when you're reminded. And the thing about the New Testament is it will remind you, right? It's not just like the New Testament. Jesus doesn't just say, what do you remember learning last week? He says, <laughs> this and you'll go, oh, I do remember when that happened. So that's the <laughs> it's more about the context than the details. It is. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> no, one, 100%. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.